And a happy Thanksgiving to everyone. Today, it's a great weekend um, to be with you. I don't know about you, but I don't, has anyone wanted to watch The Matrix after watching the quote reel? Uh, just a reminder, if you do go back to The Matrix, only watch the first one. They all go downhill from there. Just some pastoral advice for you to begin our time together. Um, we're going to continue on in, in this series that David kicked off last week called The Age of Algorithm. And if you missed it, I would encourage you to go give it a listen, as it's a great explanation that David gives around Genesis and the truth of the Eden's narrative and story within all of our lives and how we identify within it. And David ended last week with this question around how, how do we begin to put God back at the center of the story? And this is really where I want us to pick up our conversation today and move from Genesis into the book of Romans to unpack how can we begin to do and go on this journey together of putting God back at the center. But if we're going to do that well, we have to talk about something else first, and it's the imposter syndrome dilemma. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm willing to bet that all of us have had an experience of imposter syndrome at some point in our life. Um, You've probably heard about it, the imposter syndrome, and like I said, probably experienced it. It's this sense where you find yourself in a position uh, where you feel like you don't belong. You look at the surroundings around you and you say, I shouldn't be here. You look at everyone else and it appears that everyone else seems to have everything all together, but you on the inside know you're not in that same position. It makes you feel out of place. That's the imposter syndrome. And, and the truth is, is probably if you were to be honest... Your reality is far from everything being put together and far from perfect, and that's what begins to make this imposter syndrome begin to feel worse within you. Maybe for an example, you're, it's because you're watching colleagues take on more work and they're getting public praise, and you, you're just struggling to keep on top of your current workload. It makes you feel like you don't belong. Maybe I shouldn't be in this job if these other people seem to have it all together. Or maybe you're watching families on Instagram and they're posting pictures um, of their supposed perfect children that always listen, that never talk back and sit still at the dinner table. And then when you go home, your experience doesn't line up. But what do we do when we get in a room with those parents is we lie. We smile and we lie and we say, everything is awesome and our family is perfect because we feel like we're out of place. So we try to make sure that we still fit in. We all wrestle with this imposter syndrome at various times and in different settings. And the reality is, is we may even begin to think about ourselves in negative aspects and say, there must be something wrong or broken within me because I clearly am not fitting with everyone else. But what if that's actually true? What if there actually is brokenness within you, that you do have brokenness, but what about the reality that maybe everyone else does as well? And what if confessing that, being honest and vulnerable to that, is part of the solution to begin to put Jesus back at the center of our lives? You see, a few years ago, New York Times did a study regarding um, the crisis of increasing mental health emergencies across college campuses in the United States. And what they found among those who were willing to share about their own journey was, it was a similar comment. And the comment was this, it seems like everyone else isn't struggling, they have it all together. What this did is this worldview then led to isolation, depression, and growing anxiety that was leading to these emergencies, again, due to this imposter syndrome, this feeling like they were different from everyone else. But why? 
We have to ask why. Why do we assume that the general human experience in our own minds is one of great success and not pain or hardship? Or maybe deep down we know that it isn't that way, that life is painful, that love, life does have hardship, but then we have to ask the question, why do we feel the need to fake it? Why do we feel like we have to have it all together? David Zoll, in his new book called Low Anthropology, um, which is one that's shaping some of our conversation, argues that it's our belief or our theory about human nature that's causing this issue amongst people. He would suggest that our current culture promotes what we call a high anthropology. Anthropology essentially just meaning our belief about human nature, how we work as humans. And a high anthropology is this belief that we as humans have an unlimited potential that just needs to be pulled out of us, just needs to be drawn out. It believes that humans are inherently good. They're not perfect, but they're inherently good when they aren't affected by outside forces. So the only limitations within this belief on humans are the ones that we place on ourselves. The self-help book is the epitome of this belief, which has taken over bookstores and has sections dedicated to it. Why? Because there's statements like, the power for change lives in you. We've heard these comments before. Another example would be like a graduation speech. A graduation speech thinks in a high anthropology. You hear statements made in, in graduation speeches that are, you can achieve anything if you set your mind to it. Your dreams can become a reality. You're going to change the world in absolutely everything that you do. But people with this belief of humanity then judge themselves and others by their best days and their best performances. But have we ever stopped to consider the potential implications of this belief? Have we ever asked the question of, do humans actually have no limitations? Is that true? Or could this actually be a problematic foundation for life? So if we have high anthropology then is this belief that humans can achieve everything if they just continue to work harder, the opposite then would be what we would call a low anthropology. A low anthropology would be the belief that people are finite and they cannot flourish by their own power. Things like sacrificial love and charity, those, those things can happen, but they're the exceptions. They're not the rule within low anthropology. What it's ultimately doing is admitting that humans do have limitations, that by themselves, they cannot achieve everything on their own. Anne Lamott, which if you were watching the quote reel, this quote showed up there, would put it this way. She would say, everyone is screwed up, broken, clingy, and scared. Even the people who seem to have it more or less together. They are much more like you than you would believe. So try not to compare your insides to their outsides. I love that idea of comparing your insides to someone else's outsides. I mean, this is the epitome of the social media epidemic that's causing alarming increasing rates of depression and anxiety amongst its users. Because even though we know what we see online is filtered and is curated, we still see it, we process it, and we compare it to our lives and our experiences. And when they don't match up, because they rarely do, because it's filtered and curated, we jump on a treadmill of trying to achieve that life for ourselves. We chase after it under our own power. Now, at, at a first kind of here, a high anthropology can sound somewhat hopeful, that people can be good if they just continue to put more work in, if they just have more effort. But what if it's high anthropology that's actually alienating and dividing us from one another? 
Because the foundation of a high anthropology ultimately puts us at odds with others because it's creating comparison and unhealthy competition, and it puts us as the star and at the center of every story. It puts us first. And we're told to act and think and behave in a specific way so that we can continue to become greater and greater ourselves, sometimes at the cost of others. We have beliefs about how we exist as humans, what we should think about, what we should like. Like, take Nickelback, for example. You're all laughing because have you ever met a Nickelback fan? Someone, okay, we had someone confess in the first service and in the second now. They are out there. But... Most people will never confess to liking Nickelback. There's this like cultural narrative around if you want to thrive as a human, you cannot like Nickelback. Yet here's the fascinating phenomenon about them. They sell out every single concert they've ever put on, which means someone is lying. But what do we believe? We believe that there's a certain way we need to behave and think and certain things that we attach our lives to and confess to. And then the parts that don't really fit the cultural narrative, right, that don't make us thrive as people, like liking Nickelback, we hide them. We hide them. And then everyone puts their head down as they walk into Nickelback in hopes they don't meet anyone that they know so they can continue to live this way, right? We hide parts of our lives when they don't line up because that's what a high anthropology is suggesting to us. But what if we chose to look at our human experience differently? Could it be possible that we could connect on a deeper level by relating to our genuine human experience if we're willing to confess that we do have limitations, that there are parts of us that maybe we don't always let other people see? I mean, could it move us out of an imposter syndrome and into an encounter with grace? Paul, in the book of Romans, is going to seem to suggest this approach for us. You see, Paul begins this conversation in Romans chapter 5. Beginning in verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, a couple interesting things to note here. Um, that word peace there is shalom, and, uh, which is often, again, put as peace when it gets translated to English. But if you've been with us in other contexts, we've often talked about how peace, really a better way to understand that word is going to be to understand it as wholeness. So we have wholeness with God through Jesus, which is the grace that we receive. And then Paul then continues on and says that we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now, let's pause there for a moment and think about the significance, considering what we've been talking about regarding anthropology. Because what Paul is doing here is anthropological work. You see, a high anthropology wants to boast in personal achievements and accolades. It wants to put itself at the center of the story. It's not just a unique, you know, problem with our time. It happens that because Paul is addressing it here. It's the Eden story as our story. The struggle has always been us putting ourselves at the center of the story and removing God from that space. Whereas what Paul is suggesting here is the reversal of that, where we boast in the hope 
of the glory of God. It's a removal of ourselves from the center and begins to put God back at the center. And how does it happen? It's by a confession of our limitations. Confessing those things is how we begin to reverse the Eden story to put God back at the center. And then this is where Paul continues his thinking because in verse five, Paul, Paul goes on to say that this hope does not put us to shame. You see, a high anthropology is going to suggest if you aren't at the center of the story, then ultimately if you're removing yourself from that place, then you're actually putting shame on yourself. Why? Because if you aren't becoming better yourself, if you're not achieving more and working harder, well, then you're failing. And to be a failure is to feel then shame. It's not meeting up to the expectations that you have set. You see, shame is a result of a high anthropology. We've told people in various contexts that you can be anything and achieve anything if you simply just put your mind to it, but it's not true. All humans have limitations and brokenness, but we seem to believe that everything is within reach for humanity if we can just do more or enough. And if we follow that line of thinking by implication, it suggests that perfection is within reach for us. It's attainable for us. We just have to work for it. And so what do we do? We then set out on a life of pursuing perfection, of trying to get the perfect body, the perfect house, the perfect family, the perfect job, and the perfect pet, which if there is one, it's dogs, not cats. Just to... <laughs> but this belief then has shaped how we view following Jesus. Right? We think that the problem to be solved is our lack of perfection, which Jesus then is going to help us attain. Now, hear me really clearly. I'm not suggesting that Jesus did not die to conquer sin with a capital S. I firmly believe that. But when we approach following Jesus with a high anthropology that we can solve a lot of stuff ourselves, we can believe that we're mostly good. We can do this mostly on our own. And then what do we do? We just kind of tack Jesus on to the end of it in the minor areas where we're not so good, where we just need to keep working harder to kind of fix those things. And then God's going to be appeased and he's happy with us and off we go. But what this belief then can start to do if left unchecked is it can breed legalism and impatience. Because we believe that we can attain most things for ourselves then and expect others to also do the same. This is what has caused many hurts within church because this belief feels the need to gatekeep in a sense. We feel if people are serious about Jesus, they'll change right away because they have that ability within themselves. They just need to work harder. Or we begin to lay out rules and then we expect people to follow them perfectly. And if people then fall short of them, well, we start to go, ah, maybe they aren't so serious about this Jesus thing after all. Depending on your upbringing, this may also be why you have potentially felt shame when you've missed a day of Bible reading because you've been told, I need to do that every day. And it's good, don't hear me wrong. But there can be shame in that, unnecessary shame when we miss it. Or, you know, maybe when that moment when your favorite swear word makes it out of your brain and into the audible space for your kids to hear and repeat forever. <laughs> right? They hold on to it. You say please and thank you all the time. They don't listen. One bad word. Forever. Forever. But what happens then is that the church can end up in a space that looks no different than culture. Where what we do is we feel the need to come into a community, of, a church community, and hide behind a facade 
that we don't have doubts at times, that we aren't carrying hurts, that we don't continually struggle to keep Jesus at the center. And the church becomes another place where we end up wrestling with the imposter syndrome. I mean, deep down, if we're honest, we know this pursuit of perfection is flawed, but we can feel stuck and unsure how to get out of it. But the dangerous part is if we don't make a shift, ultimately a high anthropology is going to lead us to burnout. And I know that's a catchphrase word that you know, can trigger some people, but Anne Helen Peterson, who's one of the journalists who put the term into existence, suggests that burnout is the continuous failure to reach the impossible expectations we've set for ourselves. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but does that resonate with anyone? You see, it's an issue with our belief about humans, our anthropology, And what comes with it is also this feeling of betrayal because at some point there's a discovery for each of us that the roadmap that we've been given to achieving this perfect life doesn't lead us where we thought it would and we're sick of pretending it does. And so if I can be so bold as a millennial, maybe burnout isn't just a millennial issue. Maybe it's not just actually about laziness or lack of work ethic, but maybe it's actually about the reality that we all have pressure to achieve and do more than we may be able to that's causing issues in all of us. Maybe we're all closer to burnout than we would like to admit. We aren't sure how to get off the treadmill that we've got on. And what that can then do is leave us with feelings of despair and without hope. Whereas Paul in Romans 5 is saying, no, there is hope. Hope that doesn't bring shame. Hope in boasting in the glory of God. And this is where we find a difference. Because a high anthropology will teach you you can grasp everything if you work hard enough. But there's one thing that a high anthropology cannot grasp, and it is grace. Grace cannot exist in a high anthropology because you live and die by your own abilities, by what you can achieve on your own. Paul's suggesting that the hope of God removes shame, not adds to it. Paul then, as he continues in Romans 5, gives us a sense of relief if we're open to it. And you might read it and go, what relief is this? But let's look at it. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's an all-inclusive we, all of humanity. And so here's the hope. The hope is you aren't alone in your exhaustion. And God's love shown by Jesus on the cross is the relief from that endless pursuit of perfection. That's what we begin to boast in. It's the grace we can receive if we're open to it. Paul then continues on in verses 12 and kind of onward where he's going to start this comparison between creation and the Eden story and compare it to Jesus. But he starts again with another low anthropology for us. He says this, he says, Therefore just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. All, again, and all-inclusive. It's a confession for all of us, that there's nothing that we can do to get out of our mess. It confirms that the Eden story is our story, where the relationship is broken due to us taking the center, saying we can achieve all of this on our own. 
instead of putting God in his rightful place. And so the reality is, is we all need saving to restore this relationship with God. And then Paul's going to continue on as we continue to work through Romans 5, starting in verse 18. And he's going to do this interesting contrast, and I've underlined it for you so you can see it, where he's going to start with just as and make a comparison to the Eden story. And then he's going to follow it up with a so also and contrast it by the work of Jesus. He says, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, it's all focused around this mess of our story seen in Eden. We identified with that last week. And it's contrasted by this work of Jesus as the only way to restore it all, to fix it. Again, it's not this idea of just being saved from something, but being saved to a life with God. So Paul's confession here is this, is sin affects the entire cosmos, And Jesus is like Adam in that what he did affects all people. But unlike Adam in which brings death, it's Jesus who brings life. Again, Paul is working from this low anthropology that ultimately can understand grace. Because his reflections about Adam are that we're all the same. We're all the same in our failure to obey a law by our own power. And so the only answer has come through Jesus and Jesus crucified. And it's in that that we boast rather than our own goodness. And it's in this moment where Paul is kind of showing us as humans, maybe we aren't all as good as we maybe thought we were by ourselves. You see, every single human is the same because none escape the power of sin. So maybe we aren't all anomalies in our struggles of life. Maybe we don't actually need all the facades. I mean, maybe what Paul wants to suggest here is that the way to begin to put Jesus back at the center is by our communal confession and understanding that we can't do any of the saving or the restoring ourselves. And could it be, could it be that our false beliefs about ourselves are actually holding us back from a genuine encounter with grace and genuine community with others. I mean, think about the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 2, where he's talking about that the healthy don't need a doctor, the sick do. Jesus was always near to those who admitted and knew that they were in a mess. But remember who thought they weren't sick. The religious elite who believed in their own goodness, who essentially carried a high anthropology about themselves. And so, what if the way forward for us is to embrace our humanity, to embrace our mess, and confess that the only way out is found in the work of Jesus and not our own efforts and achievements? What if it's in that confession that we can begin to come face to face with genuine grace and realize that we don't need to have it all together to encounter the love of God? And could it be in that space where we begin to grow in our understanding of what Paul says in verse 20, where sin increased, grace increased all the more? 
Tom Wright is going to build on this idea, writing an article about the comparison of Romans and, and uh, the Eden story. And he says this, he says, the full good news is that in Jesus and through his death and resurrection, God has become king of the world. We look out at the world and see it in a terrible mess, and we're aware in our bones that we want to do something about it. But our own sin, our greed, our pride, our arrogance get in the way, and we rush off to do it in our own strength and worse, our own way. We humans know in our bones that we are called to bring God's wise order into the world. That is our Adam inheritance, just as much as the entail of evil. But for that to become a reality, we need ourselves to be rescued from the same problem that afflicts the rest of the world. You can put it another way and maybe more concisely by W.H. Auden, who just says this, nothing that is possible can save us. We who must die demand a miracle. And at the bottom of both of these statements is this confession of our nature and our inability to fix ourselves. And so I'd like to suggest that it's only from a confession and honesty of our own brokenness that we can begin to see the way out, to put God back at the center. I mean, anything short of that confession is to cling to some sort of status or belief that we still can fix some things ourselves. But it's in a confession like this as a church that we may begin to realize that Jesus is not just saving us from sin— although that is true, but he's also saving us from ourselves and our desire to do it all by ourselves. I mean, this confession that we're all in messes we can't get out of is going to be the beginning of an encounter with grace that's going to remind us that Jesus took care of that for you. Now, some of you might be asking how. Maybe some of you are listening to this and assuming I'm just suggesting a why bother or a self-loathing approach to faith. Just sounds like, who cares if Jesus covered all of this? But let's unpack that idea a little bit. Because self-loathing or shame, as we've briefly mentioned, comes from a high anthropology. People are more likely to be ashamed of themselves if they're functioning from inflated notions of what they believe they're capable of. The better you expect yourself to be, the more devastating it becomes to fall short and you begin to think negatively about yourself. It's how it works. Whereas Zal's going to argue in his book, Low Anthropology, a low anthropology gives us permission to look at ourselves clearly without hiding behind a scaffolding of self-flattery. It frees us from the tyranny of expectation, which fuels resentment of others. So let's continue this thought for a moment. An inflated estimation of human nature not only then affects us, it also creates limits on our love for others and the world around us. If we believe that people are rational, they're mostly good, then we tend to have zero grace for others when they make odd or self-defeating decisions instead of the virtuous ones. We scream, how could they? They know better. Yet if the Eden story is true, and we're all in it, then we must have common ground with each other if it's all our story. It's just maybe not where we thought it is. You see, we're all broken by something. We've all hurt someone and have been hurt. It may not all be the same, but we share the condition of brokenness. It is in our brokenness that we're actually united because we've all experienced it. It's common ground for all of us. And there's a guy by the name of Brian Stevenson who represents inmates on death row, and they continually asked him, why do you bother? 
Why do you bother when they're on death row? And he wrote a memoir about his book called Just Mercy, and I know there's a film about it, and he's done some TED Talks. It's very interesting. But he says this specifically about one situation. He says, I couldn't pretend that his struggle was disconnected from my own. Our shared brokenness connected us. Our brokenness is also the source of our, cum- our common humanity, the basis for our shared search for comfort, meaning, and healing. Our shared vulnerability and imperfection nurtures and sustains our capacity for compassion. I mean, it's this idea that I think is why we all deeply resonate with Paul in Romans chapter 7, where Paul begins to unpack and make these comments about he does what he hates and he knows what he should do and he doesn't do it. And we all get that feeling because we've all been there. And so the common ground is that we're all in a mess we cannot get out of ourselves. And the good news is, the hope we boast in, it's the grace of Jesus that we can all encounter, regardless of our mess, is this message of the cross. I mean, let's think back to that Anne Lamott quote at the beginning just for a moment. For some of you, maybe it sounded a bit harsh, right? Maybe you thought, not everyone is screwed up, clingy, and scared right? Or maybe some people even came into your mind, you're like, no, that quote's not for them. I know they've got everything together. Or maybe your brain went into a space where you're like, what would I say if someone made that comment to me? Our natural response would probably be, well, we need to pump them up. We need to tell them, um, you know, remind them about their graduation speech. Remember, you were told you can do everything, just work really hard, right? The world is your oyster, if people still say that. I don't know if that's a saying anymore. But but they could just achieve anything if they just put their head down and they just continued to try harder. But then maybe think for a moment to a time where you did drop a ball, where you did hurt someone. Don't Lamott's words strike a little bit more accurate? And don't in that moment, doesn't in that moment your graduation speech become a little bit more stressful? You see, this is the great irony of this, is that what initially sounded like insults, insulting words, are the liberating words. And that graduation speech that sounded liberating at first becomes the oppressive system to live in. You see, embracing and confessing our brokenness and Christ as the only answer is not apathy, because it removes you from the center and puts God back there but it also is going to take you great courage to make this confession because it's going to change about how you think about your own life and life with others. You see, Zal's going to go on to make this comparison. He's going to say this, a high anthropology breeds perfectionism, anxiety, and burnout in our lives, and isolation, confusion, and resentment in our relationship with others. A low anthropology forges sympathy, clarity, and reconciliation out of the bonds of finitude and limitation. It means grace for ourselves and for others instead of just dismissing them as a they should know better and they should just try harder and once they do that, then we'll come back to this conversation. It's gonna create patience as we journey ourselves and with others because we become united and not judged by our best moments but by our common ground of being unable to fix things ourselves and confessing together that we all need grace. Ultimately, it builds a real track where momentum and growth can actually happen. Because to be in a safe space, enough, a space safe enough to confess that we can't do certain things by our own power is the beginning 
of the shift to boasting in this hope of the glory of God and this ability to let grace reign throughout a community. Because what it does is it moves us away from our internal resources of willpower and talent and discipline and grit and whatever words you want to put there, and it opens us up to external possibilities outside of ourselves. It opens us up to the surprise of grace that doesn't ask for your perfection, it just asks for you. And it acknowledges in that confession that the move in faith is always a move of God towards us in the middle of our brokenness and not us ever achieving things that draw us closer, but God always drawing close to us. It's what the cross has made possible. See, if we were to be honest as a community, we all know the reality of regret, the fear of being unloved, the nagging thought that we aren't enough. Yet we still feel like we have to hide it. I mean, what if we acknowledge, as Paul does in Romans 5, that we all share the same human experience because the Eden story is our story. It's true. But just as that may be our story, so also grace might reign and increase all the more if we're willing to confess it. If perfection in a high anthropology causes burnout of every kind, maybe a confession of common failure, of common brokenness, of a common need for grace is going to create the opportunity for genuine community to be built. Maybe it's where genuine grace can be received and extended to others, but the first step is going to be our willingness to confess that. And so here's how I'd like to close. And it's in the same way that David did last week by coming back to these three different translations of Matthew chapter 11. But this time, um, what I would love to do is I'm going to read the translation. I'm going to read it for you. I'd love for you just again to pause as we did last week. Be aware of what God wants to say to you in that moment. But then I would love to invite someone, if you would be willing, to come forward to one of the mics and just share even a brief prayer for the community So again, I'll read this translation. You can sit and pause with it. And then if someone would be willing to come pray for us today as a community that wants to confess that we all desperately need Jesus. So we start with the NIV version that says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And if there's someone that would like to come pray for our community today. Uh, Thank you, God, for making us aware of the cracks in us. Uh, Help us to celebrate them. Um, Because the cracks are what make us human. And uh, they allow your light to penetrate into our bodies and into our minds and spirits. Thank you. Amen. Thank you. And now in the First Nations version, it says... 
Come close to my side, you whose hearts are on the ground, you who are pushed down and worn out, and I will refresh you. Follow my teachings and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest from your troubled thoughts. Walk side by side with me, and I will share in your heavy load and make it light. If there's another person who would be willing to come pray. You can just come up to the mic, yeah. They're up at the front of the aisle. If you wanna walk up, thank you. Heavenly Father, with your amazing love shining into this place, into our hearts this morning, Bring us hearts of thankfulness that comes from freedom from shame and hope. Thank you for the words that have been launched to our minds. May they heal us. May they heal our souls. Give us humility to understand that our weaknesses, our vulnerabilities, they're so shared by all bring us compassion instead of criticism and condemnation and we thank you lord for changing our destinies and for changing our todays amen amen thank you and now in the message are you tired worn out burned out on religion come to me Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Thank you for bearing our burdens, God. Thank you for holding us up in times of trouble. Thank you that we can bear each other's burdens, that we can belong in a community of support and united in a common love for you. Amen. Thank you. Would you stand with me as we close? Um, I want to read this confession just over you from the Book of Common Prayer. It's 
one that I think is a beautiful confession because it doesn't always just focus on what we do. Sometimes when we think about confessing, we think about the bad things that we did, but it also talks about our limitations because it's all about the things we leave undone, the things we don't do. It's an all-encompassing part of who we are. And so let me read this over you today as you go. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We've not loved you with our whole heart. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Would you go in God's grace and peace.